Welcome to episode 121 of Primary Care Update. I'm Mark A. Bell, a family physician and professor at the University of Georgia and editor-in-chief of Essential Evidence Plus. I'm Kate Rowland, a family physician and associate professor at Rush University. Hi, I'm Henry Barry, a family physician and one of the co-founders of InfoPoems. So we've got a couple of quick things to review. The Green Comet, it's still around. I think uh, tonight and the next couple of nights will be visible by the naked eye. You might need some binoculars to tell the, the actual color. It moves very, very slowly, so you might not detect any movement. It'll be just south of the North Star if you get a, a nice uh, uh, a clear night to do this. Uh, also, next month on March 3rd and 4th, uh, Gary and Kate, Mark, and I are presenting at the Arizona Academy of Family Physicians, so I think there's still time to register and see us in action. And the last, and probably for those of you who are interested in music history, day after tomorrow is the anniversary of the day the music died, the plane crash that killed uh Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and J.P. Richardson, or the Big Bopper. The Big Bopper, that's right. Yeah, everybody yeah. forgets the Big Bopper. All this, yeah. Yeah. So, thank you, Henry, <laughs> for that update on this podcast. We talk about we're going to talk about three poems. If you want all of the poems, and we have about twenty-five a month, subscribe to Essential Evidence, where you get the poem in your email, plus a great primary care reference with over eight hundred chapters and thousands of interactive tools. Check it out at EssentialEvidencePlus.com. This opinion, the opinions we express on Primary Care Update are those of the commentators, and this podcast doesn't represent medical advice, God forbid, or the endorsement of any product. You can also get CME credit from the Illinois Academy of Family Physicians. For listening to this podcast, go to IAFP.com and follow the links to their online education webpage. This week, vitamin C for sepsis, probiotics for halitosis, and new guidelines for the evaluation of dyspepsia. Kate, tell us about what vitamin C does for sepsis. Yeah, so in a minute, I'll get to the study that tried to answer the question of whether giving IV vitamin C to adults in the ICU who had sepsis, they had to also be getting pressors, but whether they would have a reduced risk of death or organ dysfunction compared to getting placebo. But first, as with so many trials like this, I am always curious to ask what on earth made them think that it might be useful? So I will say it's been an interesting and kind of deep rabbit hole, but in summary, about five or six years ago, it was a combination of test tube research and a retrospective cohort study that suggested that there was a combination of hydrocortisone, ascorbic acid, and thiamine. They called this HAT treatment for the, the initials of hydrocortisone, ascorbic acid, and thiamine, that that could reduce the rate of mortality and days on vasopressors who had in adults who had severe sepsis. The underlying pathophys was theorized to be a reduction in inflammation and the antioxidant properties of the vitamin C and something about endothelial damage and microvascular integrity. That was as far as I got down the pathophys. So based on this good thought, several randomized controlled trials have been conducted, of which this is just the most recent. So this RCT enrolled about 870 adults, again, in the ICU on a vasopressor with sepsis due to a suspected infection. They were randomized to either vitamin C, 50 milligrams per, per kilogram uh, of weight, or a placebo every six hours for up to 96 hours. 
They were then followed for 28 days. Primary outcome was a composite of death or organ dysfunction, which they defined as new use of renal replacement therapy, persistent vasopressor use, or mechanical ventilation. So the primary outcome occurred in about 44% of the vitamin C group and about 38% of the control group. Uh, That turned out to be, uh, as it turned out, a risk ratio of 1.2, which was statistically significant with a number needed to treat to harm of about 17, so slightly more likely in the vitamin C group. Um, That composite, again, slightly more likely in the vitamin C group, but neither death nor persistent organ dysfunction on their own were. So the composite was statistically significant, but neither component was. Uh, Other RCTs have shown no benefit from vitamin C or that combined HAT therapy and sepsis. Uh, So let's hope this either goes away or is reborn in some new, very scientifically grounded way. That was my takeaway from the whole um, whole thing. Again, it's been evaluated in several studies, um, and this is the one that found some question of of harm. The others have found just no benefit, no harm, uh, about the same as placebo. So, Henry, what do you think? Well, this is way out of my league. It's been a long time since I've done hospital medicine, so I decided to go down a slightly different rabbit hole um, and and reflect on the story that you told about why this all came about. And this, um, your story, frankly, illustrates why basic scientists, researchers, and clinicians need to interact and collaborate and generate ideas and share observations from clinical practice that scientists can then go on and do the um, do the big studies. And so in part of my reflection is then, why does family medicine as an integrative discipline continue to have separate meetings for the teachers, the clinicians, and the researchers? Back in 2002, Bill Wadland and I, along with some other colleagues, wrote an editorial. And then in 2010, uh, Mark and John and I and other colleagues had a follow-up. And yet here we are 20 years later, we are still continuing our separatist ways. Mark, you've been on the planning Mm -hmm. committee for NAPCRAG. Fix this. Yeah. Good luck. Well, you know, institutions take on a life of their own and they have different values and NAPCRAG has also become a much more international meeting where we have about half the attendees coming from Canada and Europe. So, yeah, unfortunately, I think the ship has sailed, but I totally agree with you. Like I said, I was part of that letter in 2010. And, you know, I think that um, the, the whole idea of this pathophysiological basis makes so much sense. It must be true. And they had a couple of negative trials already, and yet they find the funding to do this huge study (laughs) in the ICU. I mean, you know, when you have a wacky idea and it doesn't pan out after a couple of studies, why would you keep going? Is is there so much tied up in that pathophys? I don't know. I was reminded we were talking before we recorded about vitamin C for complex uh, regional pain syndrome, which is... Uh, has been shown in a couple of studies to prevent it with a dramatically great effect. But another one of those things where I go, really? (laughs) Vitamin C? And, you know, I think, um, fortunately, vitamin C is a pretty benign intervention. And, you know, if I had a wrist fracture, you know, I might take it because what the heck, it's not going to hurt me. But um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Riboflavin for migraines are lots of other examples of this stuff. So we need good studies big enough studies. And then if it goes one way or the other, we stop, but that never happens. <laughs> you got a quiz? I do. <clears throat> so the quiz asks, 
How long does it take to deliver recommended preventive care to adults in primary care settings? A, two hours a day, B, four hours a day, C, eight hours a day, D, it depends. Stay tuned. I don't think the correct answer is in there, but um, I'm, I'll wait. I, I haven't peeked to the end, so we'll see. I mean, the way the question's written, any of those could be true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if it's a doctor <laughs> like me, it's probably less than two hours a day. Like someone conscientious like Kate, it might be more than eight hours, who knows? But uh, Henry, tell us about probiotics and halitosis. Thank you. So, so this was triggered by a bunch of press releases that came through on my news feed about probiotics being the best thing since sliced bread for preventing um, halitosis. This was a meta-analysis done by Wang and colleagues in the BMJ Open in December. So they did the usual good things that you looked for in a meta-analysis. They looked at uh, lots of registries, and they also tried to find the gray literature to identify randomized trials of probiotics. Now, um, and these were uh, people with halitosis who are otherwise healthy adults. So when they looked at all of the studies, none of them actually used a clinically relevant PU, FU, or stink factor. They all had to report on organoleptic scores or volatile sulfur compound levels. So these are researchy, sciencey kinds of things. I have no idea what the relationship is between these organoleptic scores and the concentration of the offending gases, but the volatile sulfur compounds is at least a proxy measure for the, the, the kinds of things that are the source of um, our oral effluvia. Uh, So there were seven small trials, one decent quality, one poor quality, and the rest were, eh. They pooled all of their data, and what they found was just a barely statistically significant decrease in these little chemical substances. What it means to the person having halitosis or to those who have to interact with them, I haven't a clue. So basically what we have is a few modest quality studies that maybe there's some proxy improvement on the short term, but stay tuned. Mark. Yeah, when I think of where probiotics do their work, it's, I think, you know, large bowel, maybe small bowel, that's a long ways away from the mouth and the oral cavity. So yeah, I guess I'm not surprised it didn't have a lot of effect. And I do know that probiotics, you know, they they have a role in particular, I think, with, um, you know, preventing um, uh, diarrhea postoperatively in patients who get antibiotics, things like that. But um, yeah, we're going to have to find another way. Um, mouthwash, brush your teeth well, go get your teeth cleaned. Scrape the tongue. Scrape the tongue. Yes. Excellent. I will go scrape my tongue just as soon as we're done here. Kate? That's the definition of too much information, Mark. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there are lots of reasons I'm grateful I'm not a basic science researcher, including that I'm not very interested in a lot of basic sciences. Um, But yeah, man, I do wonder what makes somebody like look deep within themselves and be like halitosis research. Like that's that's my like my life's goal is to reduce, you know, to to you know find the the perfect way of measuring like how much somebody's breath smells, um, and then they come up with these you know like objective measures of it. Um, and they've done, you know, dozens of studies using these objective measures of, and I guess it is a very patient-oriented, you know, place to to spend your research time. But um, 
I think that's really all I have to say about the uh, the subject of I'm just in awe of people who do this for a living. <laughs> Amen. Good for them. Thank you very much for scientists for your contribution to the human project. Um, we're going to talk next about UK guidelines, the British Society of Gastroenterology guidelines for the evaluation and management of dyspepsios published appropriately enough in gut at, toward the end of 2022. And uh, Black and Payne were the first two authors. So there's a lot here. And this was based, this was a really well done guideline. I think they were quite rigorous in their methodology and how they assembled the evidence. They did a bunch of systematic reviews and network meta-analyses. So first things first, they recommend urgent evaluation in anybody with upper GI alarm symptoms like dysphagia, uh, being older with weight loss and dyspepsia or upper abdominal pain or reflux. So 55 and older, there was a lower bar for that kind of an urgent evaluation. 40 and older, um, particularly if someone's from a region where gastric cancer is common or there's a family history of gastroesophageal cancer, for example, uh, Japanese heritage, they also recommended a more urgent evaluation. Uh, a less urgent evaluation, but still involving endoscopy recommended for 55 and older, treatment resistant to dyspepsia, um, elevated platelets, low hemoglobin, uh, nausea or vomiting, especially if it's accompanied by weight loss, reflux, dyspepsia, upper abdominal pain. So combinations of symptoms and, and things that we would you know, find concerning, like low hemoglobin, that makes sense. If patients had no alarm symptoms, and they had at least two months of epigastric burning or pain, early satiety, and or postprandial fullness, they should just be given a diagnosis of functional dyspepsia, told that it's a disorder of gut-brain interaction, so if they have some science to hang it on, and to please go home and leave us alone. <laughs> uh, they didn't say that, but you know. So as part of the initial evaluation, all patients 55 and up should have a CVC with platelets. Makes sense. If they have irritable bowel-type symptoms, they should also get celiac serology. And 60 and up, if they have weight loss and abdominal pain, I think it makes sense. We would agree an abdominal CT to look for pancreatic cancer. Everyone with dyspepsia should be evaluated for H. pylori, and you should use a stool or a breath test to do that. If positive, eradicate HP. You only need to confirm that eradication if someone's at increased risk for gastric cancer or if their symptoms persist. They recommend against the routine use of gastric emptying tests or 24-hour pH monitoring for all patients. If someone's HP negative, first-line therapy is either a histamine antagonist or a proton pump inhibitor, and why not regular exercise? The guidelines don't recommend specific diets like FODMAPs. For this condition, they may be useful for folks that have a more irritable bowel-like primary presentation. Uh, prokinetics may be an effective treatment, Strongest evidence supports stegacerod. That usually is getting into sort of specialist territory. Second-line therapies include low-dose to moderate-dose tricyclics like amitriptyline. They recommend against using SSRIs, SNRIs, or buspirone for dyspepsia. And finally, cognitive behavioral therapy and other kinds of psychotherapy may be effective. If all of this doesn't work and the patient is still symptomatic, then send them to a gastroenterologist and wish them luck. Bottom line, these are generally good, thoughtful, evidence-based guidelines. I would say overall, they're a bit less maybe aggressive and quick to scope as than we are here in the States. And that's maybe a reflection of a different health system. But I think there are a lot of good takeaways. Kate? Yeah, I agree. Um, I think it's a, 
addresses a problem that we certainly see commonly, um, but also includes a pretty substantial differential, uh, which I think is useful. I think I definitely diagnose more H. pylori um, than I ever expected to. And part of that's because, you know, when you start to see a few cases of H. pylori, then all of a sudden it becomes really high on your differential. Um, but also uh, this guideline particularly uh, sort of gives you a, you know, that sort of tier of here's here's what to think of with each sort of escalating risk category. So the older your patient is, the more symptoms they have, the more different kinds of symptoms, um, all of which is very helpful for sort of developing different kinds of algorithms for different different kinds of patients. Um, so yeah, in, in general, I think a, a, a very useful, uh, and they acknowledge sort of their own limitations about what do we really know um, and what is what is just our, our best, you know, best guess based on the evidence we have. Yeah, I mean, I should add, and, and I wrote it up, it's in the poem, uh, the authors acknowledge that approximately half of the recommendations are based on lower, very low quality evidence. And that's often the case when you're talking about diagnostic evaluation. We don't have randomized trials of the best way to do a workup, typically. Uh, we have some of that for chest pain, but probably not much for this. Henry? When you look at the recommendations, I, it may be in the guideline itself, but it sounds as if there's a significant overlap between irritable bowel syndrome and functional dyspepsia, which would then be part of the recommendations around the use of tricyclics and the like. So there, that's just sort of a, mm -hmm. a, a in the back of my mind. Uh, this past year, Gary did a, a series of talks in our in our courses on upper gastrointestinal disorders, and I think he would be very happy to hear about the H. pylori um, uh, data that they're um, encouraging because he's really um, hep on this. The um, hep, yeah. Did you uh, say hep? Yeah, I did. Well, we got you. Got to get out more, Henry. I thought We're maybe get it you was out more, man. <laughs> I, was too I thought that for was second. like GI slang for a second. <laughs> yeah, I, I have uh, to. We're laughing with you, old, buddy. Laughing with you. I, I got to stop reading old books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, one of the things, just as a uh, a, 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 a note of caution with regards to H. pylori testing. If you're going to use fecal antigen testing, which are highly sensitive and specific, and maybe have a yick factor that people don't want to, to use, whereas the breath test is a bit easier. But if you're going to use the, the fecal antigen test, uh, you do need to be off proton pump inhibitors for a couple of weeks. It's okay to use bismuth and um, H2 blockers and, and other traditional antacids. So you can at least give some milder symptomatic relief to those patients. And then the last thing that Gary mentioned uh, for GERD had to do with non-pharmacologic measure, uh, measures, uh, diaphragmatic breathing and elevating the head of the bed. I haven't heard much about these for managing patients with non-GERD uh, uh, symptoms. Yeah, I haven't either. I haven't either. I remember the first time I encountered H. pylori was when I was a, maybe a senior resident at Michigan. This would have been back in like the early 50s. And I was giving a lecture and I saw this stuff that Barry Marshall the, had, had you know, published in the BMJ that there was this new cause of ulcers. And back when I was trained, we assumed it was spicy food and cigarettes or something like that and alcohol. 
And there was this new theory that it was caused by this weird new bacteria. And I presented it at Grand Rounds and basically got laughed off the stage by the faculty who were like, yeah, right, Abel, please <laughs> tell us some real science. You know? So I always think back fondly on that. I was like, I was right. <laughs> and my dad, actually, a few years later, my dad was in Germany and had a bleeding ulcer. And when he got back, this was before people were checking routinely for H. pylori. And he was H. pylori positive, treated it. And he'd been sucking down tagamets for years and immediately stopped it. It basically cured his peptic ulcer disease, which was, he was happy he sent me to medical school after that one. So always good. <laughs> always good to know. Anyway, um, and yeah, there are, I think it tends to be more common. We see more H. pylori where there are uh, poor sewage and septic systems. And in poorer countries, my dad grew up in uh, during the war and post-war Germany when their infrastructure was badly damaged. I suspect that might have been part of it. All right, Henry, take us uh, away with the quiz answer. All right. So the quiz asked, how long does it take to deliver recommended preventive care to adults in primary care settings? So back in 2003, I encountered um, Yarnall's first study that... Uh, reported it would take about seven and a half hours per working day to deliver the U.S. Preventive Services A and B level recommendations. And then a couple of years later, she and her team did a similar study looking at guideline-directed care for just 10 chronic illnesses and found that it would take almost 11 hours a day. So uh, that's been under some criticism and things have evolved over time. So in January, this uh, just a few weeks ago in the Journal of General Internal Medicine, Porter and colleagues revisited this. So very similar uh, methods. They took a hypothetical panel of 2,500 patients that represented the age and sex distribution of the U.S. population. And then using the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force A and B recommendations and the two most expensive chronic illnesses based on uh, 2014 medical expenditure panel survey, they broke down all of the various steps that it would take to provide each of these services and then figured out how long it would take to, to do that. They estimated that a single clinician would need 14 hours a day to deliver preventive care and an additional seven hours a day to deliver chronic illness care and another three hours dealing with documentation correspondence. And oh, by the way, that doesn't include patient-initiated complaints and the like. But they also did more. They decided to say, well, what, what if we tried to offload some of these things from the physician and use team-based care? How much benefit would, would it, there be on the clinician's back? Well, it turns out it would still take nine hours a day to do the uh, preventive care and four hours a day for chronic illness, and you would save 30 minutes in documentation time. So in reflection on all of this, it tells us that A, our healthcare systems are complex and largely broken, and that there's an awful lot that gets thrown onto the clinicians, and that, frankly, providing primary care is challenging, even in high-quality team-based care. We need new approaches to providing these services. Thanks, Henry. Yeah, I saw that article as well. And they, they used a panel of 2,500 patients, which seemed high for me. You know, I think 1,500 is probably more typical in primary care practice. So that may be a little bit of it. Still, it would be a lot of time. And I feel kind of guilty now having been on the USPSTF for making all those recommendations <laughs> that make it impossible for people. A lot of the recommendations, though, you know, the ones I think that are the most time consuming are 
those for intensive counseling therapies to prevent sexually transmitted infections, um, you know, around alcohol use. And those typically are three, four, five hours per patient. And that's just not something you realistically do as a family physician in primary care practice. That's where the referral out to somebody who can do that for you would, I think, make a lot more sense. But um, anyway, do you, do you believe these numbers? I, yeah. I, you know. Yeah, they certainly didn't look at team-based care um, in the level of losing like groups, uh, group visits and things of that nature. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Good stuff, though. Food for thought. Um, Kate, thanks for joining us today, Henry. And um, listeners, thank you. Hope you everybody enjoyed today's discussion. Uh, tell your friends about Primary Care Update. We'll talk to you soon with more Primary Care Updates.